Scripture reading for today comes to us from the book of Hosea, chapter 11. And we're going to start from verse 1 all the way down to verse 9. Here now, the reading of God's word. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bonds, with, excuse me, with the bands of love. And I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws. And I bent down to them and fed them. They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king. Because they have refused to return to me. The sword shall rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates, and devour them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on turning away from me. And though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me, and my compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger, and I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we ask now that you would speak to us as we come to you now in this season of Advent, asking for you to impart to us wisdom from above that cannot be captured even in the brilliant mind or the vast imagination of man. And Lord, we pray that from this insight, from this illumination, we would come away transformed and renewed, never again to be the same, but now ready to go, to be a blessing to the world that you have called us to have and to be in the lives of those who you've called us to be around. Father, now we pray that you would bless this message in spite of the one who brings it, for we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. You know, one of the phrases that you hear so commonly this time of year is this one, home for the holidays. Hey, Frank, what are you going to do for Christmas? Oh, you know, I'm going to go home for the holidays. Yeah, home for the holidays. Yeah, yeah, home for the holidays. And the underlying assumption behind that phrase is the belief that on Christmas, there is no better place to be than home, evidenced by the fact of the Christmas song that bears that very title, are lyrics within it that goes like this. For the holidays, you can't beat home sweet home. For the holidays, you can't beat home sweet home. Now, I don't think I need to convince any of you guys in here that that isn't necessarily true because for some... For many, home isn't so sweet. I mean, it may be true that for the holidays you can't beat home sweet home, but you know what else is also true? Is that there is a place that beats you down no more better than home itself. And I sometimes mean that literally. You might have heard me say this before, but did you know that during this time of year, we have the highest spike, the highest surge of domestic violence worldwide. This time that we're in, more than any time of year, has the highest rage, highest surge of domestic violence. You see, if Christmas conveys to some people this idea of peace on earth, for others, it more conveys terror at home. And you don't have to be an expert in human psychology to know why this is so. All of us in here have lived long enough that one of the biggest heartaches and frustrations that we have to deal with are our loved ones. People who we love, or maybe a better way to put it, who we 
trying to love. And when we're pressured by society to just come together with people who can't stand us or maybe whom we can't stand, it is understandable and therefore inevitable that affection goes out the window and animosity comes crashing through the roof. And the question that I want to ask all of you Christians in here is, as followers of Jesus, how do we respond to that reality, whether it's our own reality or the reality of those who are in our lives who have to face that coming up in the next couple of weeks? We're continuing our Advent Sermon series entitled, The Stories of Christmas Past. And the whole point of this series is to look at the Old Testament narratives that are cited in Matthew's account of the Christmas story. And today, we take a look at this very well-known passage in Hosea chapter 11. And as we do, the prophet Hosea is going to speak on behalf of God, or maybe a better way to put it, God is going to speak through his prophet And he's going to impart to us some really practical and profound wisdom on not only how to avoid, but even how to engage turmoil and pain at home as you or someone you know make their way back this upcoming Christmas season. So with that in mind, three things I'd like to share with you that all centered on God's love. Number one, God's love is stubborn. God's love is stubborn. Number two, God's love inspires imitation And finally, God's love is accessed through Jesus. God's love is stubborn, it inspires imitation, and it's accessed through Jesus. Let's begin with the first, God's love is stubborn. Read again with me, verse 1 of our passage where we read, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Now, just a little context here. The I that is speaking is none other than God himself. And what is God saying? Well, he's saying he loves someone. Specifically, the nation of Israel, which we'll come back to in just a moment. But for now, I need to address something by addressing those of you here investigating the Christian faith. Chances are, for those of you here who are considering Christianity, you probably don't know much about the Christian God that we worship. And yet, nevertheless, I'm also willing to bet that what little you do know about the God we worship is that he is a God of love. And that little knowledge that you acquired could really lead you to absurdity in your thinking if you're not careful. How so? Well, consider these words from theologian D.A. Carson. This comes from his book, The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God. Listen to what he says, quote, If people believe in God at all today, the overwhelming majority hold that this God, whoever he, she, or it may be understood, is a loving being. But that is what it makes the task of the Christian witness so daunting. Nowadays, if you tell people that God loves them, they're unlikely to be surprised. Of course God loves me. He's like that, isn't he? Besides, why shouldn't he love me? I'm kind of cute, or at least as nice as the next person. I'm okay, you're okay, and God loves you and me. End quote. What's he saying? He's saying it's possible to misunderstand the truth that God is loving to the point where you misunderstand yourself. In other words, a superficial understanding of the fact that God loves you could lead you to the conclusion that you are such a lovable person. But when you consider what Hosea is saying here, you'll come to find that you cannot hold on to that conviction without being delusional. Because if there's anything that the prophet Hosea wants us to understand about God's love is that it has nothing to do with the with the idea, I was about to say fact, and it's not a fact, with the idea that you are a lovable person, evidenced by the fact that his love is so stubborn. Let me explain. Usually when we think of the word stubborn, we think of it in a very negative way, right? After all, when you think about a stubborn child, a stubborn boss, 
a stubborn president. Usually the kind of emotions that come out of you when you think of such people is a lot of negativity. Am I right? And yet on the other hand, if you combine that idea of stubbornness and match it with certain virtues like goodness, joy, faithfulness, now something that usually elicits a negative response all of a sudden inspires you. And the Bible tells us that one particular virtue that inspires us the most when it's combined with the idea of stubbornness is love. Love. Stubborn love. Excuse me. And that right there is what I mean when I say God's love is stubborn. It's a stubborn love that is inspiring. It's an inspiring love. And when I mean inspiring, I'm not trying to be sentimental. I'm trying to be instructional. What does it actually mean to be inspired? What is the word inspire? Literally, the etymological function of the word means to breathe into, like when a doctor is performing CPR, breathing life into a body that has lost its breath, right? That's what it means to inspire, to breathe life into something. But what does that mean? Well, let me put it this way. You ever been around someone who just sucks the life out of you? You know the type. You know the kind. The people who just constantly, whenever you're around them, discourage you, discomfort you, drains you. Huh? You know who I'm thinking of. Please don't be thinking of me right now. Right? If it is, I'm sorry. Well, a person who inspires does the exact opposite. A person who inspires is someone who energizes us to have strength to do things that we couldn't do before. A person who inspires us encourages us to endure through difficult things. A person who inspires is someone who gives us a sense of insuredness that we are safe to where we're willing to take risks. That's what God's stubborn loves inspires us to be. Energized, encouraged, insured. And when you understand this, then you're properly understanding the nature of God's love, specifically why he loves you. And guess what, folks? It has nothing to do with you thinking that you're a lovable person. Because if you were such a lovable person, would God's love for you need to be stubborn? No. If there's anything that the stubborn love of God should say about us, Right? is that we are quite the opposite of a, level, of a lovable person, and it says much about who God is. The fact that God's love for us is stubborn tells us that by nature, he is a loving person, not we by nature are lovable people. Again, God's stubborn love assumes that he by nature is a loving person, not that you and I by nature are lovable people. <clears throat> you know how they say, that you don't really know someone until they're really in a difficult situation. You don't really know what a person is really made of until they're in a very difficult bind, very tremendous difficulty. Well, it turns out that truth also applies to God. Now, please don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I am not in any way implying that there's anything that's difficult for God because he's God by nature. Nothing is too difficult for him. Amen. But when I say what I'm saying to you, I'm simply implying, not implying, I'm simply telling you that when God is in the context of difficult people, you see him for who he truly is in his core. Read again verse 1, but this time, this time, let's include verse 2 and 3, where it says, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols, yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up in the, by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. 
Notice how God describes the people who he dearly loves in verse 2. What does he refer to as mass? Idol worshipers. People who betray God, reject God by worshiping other gods that aren't even real gods. They're false gods. If there is one sin that is especially egregious to God, one sin that conveys to him that you despise him the most is the sin of idolatry. Why do you think the first two commandments of the famed Ten Commandments all focus on idolatry? Do you know why? You think that's just coincidence? Let's see if Pastor Tim Keller can help us out. Listen to what he says. Quote, the Ten Commandments begin with the two commandments against idolatry. Then come commandments three through ten. Why this order? It is because the fundamental problem in law-breaking is always idolatry. In other words, we never break commandments three through ten without first breaking one and two. What's he saying? He's saying behind all the destructive and disgusting sins that plague our life, cheating, lying, adultery, murder, theft, at its root is the sin of idolatry. Behind every sin, every vice that has caused our world to be as messed up as it is, is the fundamental problem of worshiping something or someone instead of the only true living God. And yet how does God knowing how upset he gets, how wounded he is by such idolatry. How does he respond to the people he loves when they wrong him this way? Does he fantasize with certain scenarios of him pouring down wrath and bringing judgment to our destruction? Is that what he's thinking? Verse 3, what does he do? He remembers and he relives a time when he and his loved ones were in such a beautiful relationship It was reminiscent to the way a father loves his child, teaching that child how to walk for the first time. You know, as I was studying and meditating on verse 3 this week, it brought me back to those precious moments that I'm actually in right now with number 5 of teaching my kids how to walk. I don't know if you guys have ever had the privilege or joy, but it's one of the most sacred and precious moments it's one of the few moments that actually allows me to express sometimes the insatiable desire to love my children as their father that was such a beautiful thing and that conveys the love that god has towards his people even the very people who wrong him who wound him with the sin of idolatry now christian let me ask you this question when your loved ones wrong you kind of like the way god's loved ones wrong him How do you respond? Are you like God where the first thing that you do is reminisce and remember and yearn for those days where things were right and good and beautiful with them? Or does your mind veer towards wrath and destruction where you are hurtful, hateful, condemning, and criticizing? I think if we were brutally honest, it's probably more the latter rather than the former, right? And this is why God's love is stubborn and why it inspires us because our love doesn't match our love is nothing like that as we think about how we respond to our loved ones hurting us betraying us stabbing us in the back it is not paralleling the reaction of god here recorded for us in hosea 11 because our love unlike god's love is not stubborn and it's not inspirational god's love is the only love with such stubborn inspiration that does what it does. This is why Paul says what he does, by the way, in 1 Corinthians 13, his famous chapter on love. Read it again with me, starting in verse 4. Love is patient. 
Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. This is God's love. And it's so unlike ours because it is so stubborn. And because it is so stubborn, as I just said a moment ago, it inspires But the question is, how exactly does it inspire? In what way does it affect us to where we're inspired to do anything? That's a great question, which leads me to my next point. God's love inspires imitation. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. We're starting in verse 43. We read, You've heard the law that says, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. In that way, you will be acting as true children of your Father in heaven. For he gives his sunlight to both the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust alike. If you only love those who love you, what reward is there for that? Even corrupt tax collectors do that much. If you are kind only to your friends, how are you different from anyone else? Even pagans do that. But you are to be perfect even as your Father in heaven is perfect come on back these are considered some of the most famed words of jesus from his well-known sermon on the mount and the message he's saying here is pretty obvious you as followers of him are to love those who can't stand you because that's exactly what your father in heaven does he loves those who cannot stand him and when we apply that principle to our passage in hosea we come to find that there are two things that God wants us to imitate that God displays for us in this chapter of Hosea 11. And you know what those two things are? Never be a doormat, never shut the door. Never be a doormat, never shut the door. Let's begin. First, never be a doormat. Let's selectively read our passage in Hosea 11, but this time focus on 2, 5, and the first half of verse 7. I'll just read it and just listen. You don't have to follow along. The more they were called the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offering to idols. They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king because they have refused to return to me. My people are bent on turning away from me. Here in his own words is God's own admission of God's people unwillingness to love him back as a response to God's first love for them. Think about that for a moment. This is God. The flawless, impeccable, perfect being. The only impeccable, perfect person. And yet, he has relational problems. Why is that so significant? You know why it's so significant? Because it contradicts some of the most hurtful things that your loved ones say to you all the time. If only you were a little bit more responsible. If only you were a little bit more studious. If only you were a little bit more faithful. If only you were a little bit more successful sound familiar one of the reasons why it's so difficult to love our loved ones is because they always accuse you that when it comes to the reason why things are not well between you and them it's because of you it's always you you're the source of the problem it's your insecurities it's your imperfections it's your issues It's your irresponsibilities. It's your immaturity. It's always and only you, you, you. And what do we do? At least for a while. We agree with them. And we beat ourselves up 
trying to make them happy, but of course after we first let them beat us down, and we end up becoming a doormat, walking all over us, putting all the blame, taking all the responsibility on ourselves as to why our loved ones are so unhappy with us. Here's the problem. That isn't always, or even most of the time, even true. Because if it were, God, who is perfect, who has no issues, who has no immaturity, he shouldn't have technically any relational problems, right? I mean, if there's anyone who should be free from any drama, any baggage from their loved ones, it should be this guy. It should be the Lord. And yet here in our passage, clearly he does. Why? Not because he's the problem, but his loved ones are the problem. And friends, that's also true for your loved ones too. In spite of what they may say, in spite of what they may accuse, you are never always the problem. Now, please don't misunderstand. I am not in any way saying that you're the innocent party or that you're always the victim. Come on. Right? But at the same time, I'm also saying you are never always. You are not only sole reason the problem of why things are bad. And the reason why I can say this with certainty about your loved ones being that way is because I know something about them that I know about you. They're sinners. They're broken. Just like you. Just like me. And if you don't recognize that, you will be a doormat. And one of the ways that you know that you've fallen victim to this kind of attitude and behavior is that you constantly violate the law of sowing and reaping. What? What's that? Let me explain. In their award-winning book, Boundaries, uh, doctors Henry Cloud and John Talzin talk about the top 10 laws of boundaries. And you know what comes in at number one as the most significant law of boundaries? Is the law of sowing and reaping. Follow along as I read this in terms of how they explain it. Quote, when God tells us that we will reap what we sow, he is not punishing us. He is telling us how things really are. If you smoke cigarettes, you most likely will develop a smoker's hack, and you may even get lung cancer. If you overspend, you most likely will get calls from creditors, and you may even go hungry because you have no money for food. Sometimes, however, people don't reap what they sow because someone else steps in and reaps the consequences for them. If every time you overspend, your mother sent you money to cover check overdrafts of high credit card balances, you wouldn't reap the consequences of your spending thrift ways. As the mother in the above example demonstrates, the law of sowing and reaping can be interrupted. Just as we can interfere with the law of gravity by catching a glass tumbling off the table, people can interfere with the law of cause and effect by rescuing irresponsible people. Rescuing people from the natural consequences of his behavior enable him to continue in irresponsible behavior. Let me read that last sentence again. Rescuing people from the natural consequences of his behavior enables him to continue in irresponsible behavior. That right there is why you should never allow yourself being treated as a doormat from your loved ones. Because all it will do is enable them to keep having an irresponsible lifestyle. And in spite of what you may think, that is not love. You know why that's not love? That isn't how God loves. Read our passage starting in verse 5. They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king. Because they have refused to return to me, the sword shall rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates, and devour them because of their own counsels. The original Hebrew, their stupidity. What is this? This is God loving his people by not interfering with the laws of cause and effect, by not 
enabling his people to maintain an irresponsible lifestyle through the folly of their idolatry. And friends, that's how you need to love your loved ones, by refusing to be a doormat, by refusing to enable them to live such irresponsibly to where they're getting closer and closer to their own self-destruction. That is not love. Because no way is God ever going to be committed to your own destruction. And you shouldn't either if you truly love those who you are saying you love. Now, with all that said, I need to make sure that you don't take what I told you and misunderstand it by going to an erroneous conclusion. Okay? Because when I tell you that you shouldn't be a doormat, I am not in any way telling you that therefore you should shut them out of your life. That is not what I'm saying at all. Because if you look at what Hosea says, he tells us of another characteristic of God's love for his loved ones that we are also to imitate. And you know what that is? Never shut the door on them. Read again verse 8. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. What is God saying here? Simple. He does not shut the door of his heart on those who he loves in spite of the fact that they hurt him and harm him, sin against him. And what I mean by that is he never goes up to his loved one and says, I give up on you. We're done. Quite the opposite. He says the very opposite, verse 8. How could I give you up, O Ephraim? He can't. He won't. And here's the thing to remember. This is God talking. If there is one person in all of reality who has the right to tell his loved ones who are constantly wronging him, you know what? You do you. I do me. We're done. We're finished. It's this guy. It's the Lord. God has that right. And the fact that he does not exercise that right, and yet he wants you to imitate him in the way that he loves, as we just read in Matthew 5. What does that tell us, Christian? You know what it tells you. You, Christian, have no right to ever say to a loved one, no matter how much they wound you, no matter how much they wrong you, we're done. You do you, I do me. You can never say that. You can never say that. You always have to keep that door open no matter how hard it is, no matter how contrary it is to your own self-preservation. You must keep that door open. This is why Jesus gave this command in Matthew 5. Now I know you hear this, and you're like, PJ, you, you took some crazy pills this morning. I did take some pills, but they weren't crazy. They were ibuprofen. Right? But I get it. I get it. Right? Because what I'm telling you now sounds so unnatural, and you're right. It is unnatural. It's supernatural. Because this kind of love does not find its origin within this realm, within this world. It comes outside of this world it comes out of the realm of this existence and out of the very supernatural heart of god and do you know what god knows this and he knows how hard and how difficult it is specifically how hard it is to do practically how do you practically keep the door open to those who you just want to slam the door on permanently 
Well, I would like to suggest that if we go back to what Jesus says in Matthew 5, there are two practical things that we can do for the Holy Spirit to use that will enable us to keep the doors of our heart open to our loved ones who hurt us so much. The first is prayer. Verse 44 of Matthew 5, can we have it up there? What did it say? Pray for those who persecute you, including your difficult loved ones. Why? Why prayer? Out of all the things that you could do, why does God want us to pray for our difficult loved ones? Because what is prayer? Prayer is talking to God. When you're talking to God, you're in the presence of God. And when you're in the presence of God, what does that mean? God is there. Duh. So often, in the difficult relationships that we have with our loved ones, we have such tunnel vision where the only people that we see is them and us. Nobody else. Right? Nobody else. But the very act of praying for this person invites the very presence of God, thereby shielding us from becoming functionally atheistic in the way we handle our difficult relationships. And when as we constantly pray in the presence of God, asking for their good, what are we reminded of as we are in the presence of God? We're reminded of God's word. Because the Holy Spirit tells us that when we genuinely pray, the Spirit of God uses scripture that we've learned through the preaching of the word, the study of the word. And he reminds of passages like Matthew chapter 5. So pray for those difficult loved ones. Genuinely pray for them. And I'm not talking about imprecatory prayers like, Lord, smash their teeth and, and grind them down. No, no, no. Don't, don't, don't do those. Pray the way Jesus tells you to pray. Pray for their good. Pray for their life to flourish. Pray for God's heart for that person. Pray. The second thing that we can do <clears throat> This is what Jesus says in 47. Kindness. If you're only kind to those who you love, what reward is that? That rhetorical question really has one statement. Be kind to your difficult loved ones. And what that basically means is, though your loved ones may treat you like you're their enemy, never treat them like your enemy. Instead, treat them like they're your kin, your family. Kindness, K-I-N, kin, kindness, that's where it comes from. Instead of wishing for their downfall, instead of wishing for revenge, instead of wishing for their ruin, show them acts of kindness. I don't mean emotional kindness where you have to feel kind towards them, but do acts of kindness to where you're expressing love for them. But here's the thing. Always do that within the boundary of not becoming a doormat. In other words, love them not according to their terms, but love them according to God's terms, is what I'm saying. If they say, oh, if you want to really love me, then you need to give me that check so I can get out of jail, right? So I can make bond. If you really love me, you'll give me that drink, even though I'm trying hard to be sober. That's not love. Love is loving that person to where they are not sinning against God. Show acts of kindness to where you care about their life thriving, not being ruined. A passage of scripture that I think is very relevant in this whole discussion is what we read in Proverbs 24, verse 17 and 18. Listen to what it says. Don't rejoice when your enemies fall. Don't be happy when they stumble, for the Lord will be displeased with you and will turn his anger away from them. The way that you show kindness is not enabling a bitterness in your heart where you wish for revenge, where we yearn for their ruin where you hope for their downfall. But if anything, 
you want what God wants for them, to turn away from their folly and go towards wisdom. That hopefully includes restoration between you and them. Still hard to envision? Here's a practical example. Figure out what their love language is. You know the love language? Five of them, touch, gifts, presence, words of affirmation, acts of service. What are the words, or excuse me, what are the love languages that really show and express to them that they receive love, right? And then do that. If it's words of encouragement, write them an email. If it's acts of service, do something that enables them to thrive, not enables them to sin. If it's touch, give them a hug this Christmas. What can you do practically that won't allow you to be a doormat but will also enable you to love them with acts of kindness? There you have it. Prayer and kindness. Kindness and prayer. Now you hear that and you're like, Pastor, this may be practical, but it's not possible. (laughs) How in the world can you expect me to not be a doormat but also to not shut the door? just sounds... Virtually impossible. Let's see if we can make it possible by going to the final point. God's love is access through Jesus. Read verse 9 of our passage. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. For I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. Here, God tells us in his own words how all of this is possible. The only way you can love your difficult loved ones is that God must first come to you but he must come to you not in wrath. Here's a question. If the most powerful being of all, capable of destroying everything and everyone with just a passing thought, right? Just with a passing thought, and you couple that with the fact that you, by nature, are an unlovable person because you are a selfish, sinister sinner, right? How would he need to come to you in a way that would convince you that in his coming of you, he's not to destroy you? How could you be persuaded? How can you be convinced? Maybe if he comes in the most humble, helpless, harmless form of all. Let's say maybe a baby. Yeah, I don't know. I, I have a hard time saying that because I have a baby right now. He doesn't seem very harmless to me. But you got the point. Right? That's the story of Christmas. God, the eternal son of God, the creator of the world, the most powerful being of all, came into this world as a helpless humble babe because he came for you not in wrath but to empower you in his love power you in his love what is that that is the gospel story what is the gospel the gospel is god's message to all of us to all of you okay that you are unlovable (laughs) that's the first part of the gospel message you are unlovable. What your difficult loved ones are to you, you are to God, but infinitely worse. You know, I'm convinced that one of the reasons why God puts difficult loved ones in our, in our lives is to kind of give us a small taste of what we have been to him and what we may still be to him. Right? What your difficult loved ones are to you, you are to God, but infinitely worse. Why infinitely worse? Because unlike God, you're not flawless, you're not impeccable, you're not perfect. But nevertheless, God, the gospel goes on to say, <clears throat> who had every right to give up and shut the door on you to where you're no longer in his life, he was gave up on. His life was shut upon so that you can maintain a presence in his life. How? 
by coming into this world to die on the cross as your Savior substitute, forgiving you of all of your unlovableness and all of its disgusting display so that you could be forgiven if you trust in him as your Lord and Savior, if you believe he has loved you like this. If you have that conviction, if you have that belief, now you have access to power that energizes you, encourages you, and gives you ensured confidence to be able to love those who are difficult to love in your life because you receive a love from someone who you couldn't stand at one point but now are enraptured by because of Jesus. When you constantly are reminded and encouraged by and energized and insured by the love of God in Jesus Christ that's preeminently displayed on Christmas, oh brother, oh sister, now you can go home this holiday and you have an arsenal of energy and power to face your loved ones to where you won't be a doormat, you won't shut the door. But here's the question. Have you received that love? Have you been reminded of that love? Are you willing to receive that love again? I want to end this message with a couple of next steps. First, beginning with those of you who are here as our guests investigating the Christian faith, I first want to ask if today's message really stirred you to the point where you're really ready to move forward, and you want to use the resources that Jesus provides by accepting him as your Lord and Savior, take this time now and and go to him. Pray. Ask for God to be in your life so that you can once again be reminded of this glorious story of Christmas that maybe you have discovered for the first time today. Number two, for the rest of you, write out a prayer list of people in your life who are difficult people to love. A brother, a parent, a child, a sibling, a friend, <clears throat> coworker, And as you do, read repeatedly Matthew 5, verse 43 to 48, and substitute the word enemy for that person's name. Okay? And do that over and over and over again, each day leading up to Christmas. <clears throat> Ask the Holy Spirit to change your heart to love your loved one this holiday season from here on out. Ask a fellow Oikos group member <clears throat> to help you come up with practical ways to gift the people on your list with acts of kindness acts of kindness and then finally if you really want some more in-depth help on this get a copy of the book boundaries by henry cloud and john townsend for further insight so that you can really be equipped and educated to do this very thing that christ has called us to do let's pray father we ask that you would help us to understand your love in the way that it's supposed to be understood. So often we misunderstand it in such cheap sentimentality and we come away thinking of ourselves in a way that is not true. Oh Lord, forgive us for ever thinking that we could ever be lovable people because you love us. No Lord, help us to always remember that your love is stubbornly inspirational because you are a God who is so good and so merciful. Evidenced by you coming into this world, Lord Jesus, as our Savior substitute. Father, as we think about uh, what your Son has done on our behalf in accordance to your decree, Father, may we be truly empowered by your Holy Spirit who dwells within to face these people in the next couple of weeks so that we would not continue the distance, the disturbance between us, but that there would be healing and hope 
from here on out. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters here who have these people in their lives, as I know I do. Father, help us, because we cannot do it on our own. May the power and magic of Christmas really culminate in healing and restoration of relationships. For we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.